Luke 5, 1 through 8. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That's Galilee. (coughs) And he saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's. And urged him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great multitude of fish, and their nets broke. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the catch of the fish which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Fear not. From now on you will catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all. And followed him. The miracles of our Lord will seem more remarkable to you if you take time to imagine. Do you have a good imagination? God wants you to have a good imagination. To be able to reach outside of what you immediately see and think about other scenes and times and places. Even things that could be. And if you can do that here in Luke chapter 5, you might understand something of what Peter felt and saw. Let me help you with your imagination. Jesus is a teacher at 30 years old. He's walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side. It's a large lake and you can look out over it. And this is where many little boats would be out. The book of Mark tells us once while Jesus was walking across the water... That there were other ships out there. And there would often be many ships on the Sea of Galilee. All trying to make a living. He's walking along there. Probably in the morning. Because fishermen want to go early. Or as these men did all night. So Jesus is walking along. at Who knows? Maybe 10 o'clock? 9 o'clock in the morning? And there's a crowd that wants to hear the preaching. 
as the crowd gets nearer and nearer to him, and as he is sloping downward on the beach, it's more difficult for them to see him. It's more difficult for his voice to carry. And then, as crowds will do, they press on him because they've already heard that this one does miracles. And the closer they press, the more difficult it is for the people in the back to hear. So, pushing through the crowd, he sees two men that he knows. Peter and Andrew. Brothers. They had partners in their business, James and John. We know they were partners because verse 7 says they were financial partners. They worked together. They helped each other. There's at least two boats. Andrew and Peter's boat and James and John's boat. And either the boats were very large because they had men helping them. Verse, verse number... <clears throat> which verse says there were men helping them? Oh yes, verse 7. They have men helping them. There's men working together. These, these brothers had a business and they had employees who worked under them, either with multiple ships or with large ships. And so, Peter and Andrew, who had already met Jesus, John chapter 1 tells us about the first time that they met Jesus, and they stayed with him for a full day. Possibly they had worked all night, and then they stayed with Jesus during the day in John chapter 1. Or possibly, they took the day off from work, because Andrew said, we have found the Christ. And Jesus stays with them all day and talks with them. Maybe several months later, this story happens. There's another story in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, where Jesus sees them and calls them and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Is that the same story as this? We don't know. Commentators are divided. Matthew Henry says it's the same story. MacArthur says it's not. Do you like the new or the old? It might be different because in this passage it says in verse number 2 they were washing their nets. But in chapter 4 it says they were fishing. In Matthew chapter 4 it doesn't say anything about the miracle of the fish. You would think something as big as a miracle of the fish would show up in Matthew's account, but it doesn't. Making us think it's two different accounts. But in Matthew chapter 4, he says, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they followed him. Here in Matthew, in Luke 5, verse 11, they forsook all and followed him. That sounds like the same account. So we're back at the same place. We don't know. <clears throat> but we do know that Jesus knew these men for some time. They had heard his preaching. They had heard him teach. And now he comes to them on a normal weekday morning and says to them, let me get in your boat and go out a little way from the sea. Notice that. He has the impertinence or the boldness to come right up to these fishermen who've been working and saying, can I use your boat? Would you do that to someone about their bucky? Would you just walk up to someone and say, I just want to use your bucky. I just want to stand in the back and preach to people. 
Look in verse number, in verse number three. He urged him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And then he, he sits down and teaches the people out of the ship. And notice that he teaches the people. It's so many people that he wants to be maybe 10 meters back from them. So that everyone could hear a large crowd. Peter knew that. This man attracts crowds. This man is bold. Though he's 30, he'll come on right up to you and say, can I use your boat? As if he owns it or deserves it. He does more than that though. Because when he's done preaching, he assumes that he knows more than the experts. Look at verse 4. Now when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Who's the fisherman? It's not Jesus, he's a carpenter. But he assumes, oh, you're an expert? Well, I'm actually more knowledgeable than you. He just assumes, how would you feel at work if someone who does a different job from you walks into your work and tells you how to do it? You might say, mind your own business. But something about the power and demeanor and the eyes and the face and the body and the arms and the teaching of Jesus. No. Instead, in verse 5, what does Simon call him? Master. That's a different word from what he's going to call him in verse 8. In verse 8, what does he call Jesus? Lord. It's the Greek word kreos. Lord. But here in verse 5, he calls him master. That word was reserved for people of high rank. It's not found very often in the New Testament. And it's consistently applied to Jesus Christ. Notice that Peter, he's not afraid to give all of the greatest titles to this man. He's already learned in a short amount of time... Here's a man who deserves the greatest titles. Master. Lord. Lord, Curios, was the title that they gave to the Roman emperors. Curios. The one that you must obey. Master speaks to the same thing. Our Lord assumes authority throughout the whole thing. In this entire story, he assumes that he deserves the boat. He deserves the people's time. He deserves in verse 10 that they leave everything and follow him. He assumes that he has authority over the fishing business. He assumes it. Some time ago I read in a theology book a very helpful insight. The strongest proof of the deity of Christ is not John 1.1. Do you know John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that proves that Jesus is God. But if you give that to a Jehovah's Witness, they have their tricks to get around it. 
But I read in this book where the man said, the strongest proof that Jesus is God is that he assumes he's God. And the writers of the New Testament assume that he's God. It's just an assumption. In verse 8, Peter falls at Jesus' knees in the middle of fish and says, Lord! If someone did that to me, I would say, stand up. Jesus doesn't say stand up. He says, don't be afraid. Ha! The assumption that he is king, that he is God. But here is where the amazing truths of this passage begin. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> and when they had let down their nets, they enclosed a great multitude of fish. That means that this man, and when you look at him, he has hair and ears and chin. He has clothes like you. He speaks your language. He has an accent like you. He's about your height. But he can get right down in the deep water. Verse 5 says, they went to the deep water. And this one can look over a lake that's 30 kilometers long. And he can look right down to the bottom of it. Where no eye can go, he goes. Where no light has reached, he reached. At the same time, he knows where all the fish are. He knows their sizes. In the book of John, he's going to do the same thing. But there, he only sends 153 fish. If you send 153 fish, will the nets break if they're 100 grams? No, you put 153 of those in one bucket. Jesus sent 153 large fish in John 21. The implication is that he did the same thing here because the catch of fish was so numerous that the boats are going to sink. He goes through the whole lake, finds the large fish, and in the time it takes them to get from shore, out to the deep water, he communicates with not one or two or five or ten. He speaks the language of hundreds or thousands of fish. He not only talks to fish, he tells them what to do, but he makes them obey. You have trouble doing that with your dog. He does it with hundreds or thousands of fish from all over the dark parts of the ocean. He talks to them and controls them so that they, they don't just 
mildly obey. Have you ever seen someone try to show off with their dog? They say, come, and the dog generally comes in the direction. These fish come right to the net. They don't just come near in a big cloud by the boats. They come to the net and they get in. Because there's a front side and a back side to the net. And fish are dumb animals, right? Some are going to come to the back of the net. No, he sends them all to the right side. He controls not one or two or ten, not a hundred, but a multitude of fish in the dark, speaking to them and communicating to them. And when he does this, he also fulfills his prophecy. It is one thing to know what will happen in the future. It is another thing to cause something to happen in the future. In verse 5, he tells them to go out. I'm sorry, in verse 4, he tells them to go out into the deep water and in verse 6 he causes his own command to become reality the prosperity preachers tell us that if we speak faith our faith has power no that's a lie. Faith is like an empty cup. It has to have water in it, or sludge, or jick. The cup by itself doesn't help. You need the contents. It's Christ as the object of faith that is the only way in which our faith matters at all. Your faith is nothing. It's Christ the object of faith who is everything. Show me your beautiful golden cup. And put that man with his cup in the desert. And he would gladly throw away the gold cup for a plastic bucket full of water. The object is the great thing of faith. Christ not only prophesied, he caused it to happen. And the false teachers are never more inaccurate than when they say, your faith has great power. No, it doesn't. No more than a cup quenches thirst. It's water, juice, cold drink. It's what's inside that satisfies. Jesus did not exercise the power of his faith as Kenneth Copeland teaches from this passage. Jesus did not exercise his ability to have positive confession. He did not confess positive truths in verse 4. He commanded it, and then he caused it to happen. 
All of those things are the glories of God. Only God can do those things. And right here, we see the glory of Jesus Christ revealed. That's point one in the notes. But there's a second point, and it's the great point. In fact, it's the whole point of the sermon. It's verse 8. <clears throat> when Simon Peter saw the miracle, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Thank you. That was amazing. That's what we think should have been written. Because we have dead imaginations. Don't be afraid of reading C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. We need to strengthen our imagination. We need to learn to imagine in a biblical, godly way. Think clearly about what would have happened if you had been there. You knew this young man was a clear thinker. You knew he was a gifted communicator. You knew he was a pure and righteous man. But now you're seeing that he talks to fish in the dark and tells them what to do. And they listen. And all their brothers and sisters listen. And you will know immediately no man can do that. And your impulse will be to fall down in fear, just like the Apostle John. When Jesus revealed himself to John <clears throat> in Revelation chapter 1, John fell down before the Lord Jesus, and Jesus says again, Do not fear. When Christ reveals himself, you will fall at his feet. And he'll tell you, don't be afraid. In the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord revealed himself, <clears throat> people fell at his feet and he said, do not fear. It reminds you of Moses who went up on the mountain and when he came down, what happened to his face? It shone and the people were afraid. Even if you get near to the Lamb of God, you might reflect His glory. Peter sees that glory, and he doesn't say thank you. He has no thought for anything except the great matter. The great matter is not the fish. It's not the fact that Jesus just gave him a week or two weeks or three weeks worth of Money, maybe a month's worth of money in that one morning. Can you imagine that? <clears throat> if your salary was dependent on your fish, and suddenly you've got multiple boats filled with large fish, he doesn't think about the money. He thinks about what? His sin. I'd like to bring out the fact to you that it is 
uncommon to see your sin accurately. Most people do not see their sin accurately. Do not lie to yourself and say, Oh, I see myself honestly. I see, I see what's really happening. Do you? Then you would talk like Peter. The way we talk, if we really see ourselves as this, Depart from me. I am sinful. That's the way to talk. That's the biblical way to talk. Peter talks that way. He had seen Jesus. His knowledge had been slowly growing, slowly clarifying like a painter. Every day who comes and adds a few more details and brush strokes. So that slowly the painting becomes more clear. That's what's happening in Peter's mind. And now he saw who Jesus was. The surest way to be confronted by your sin. The surest way to see yourself accurately. Is to be confronted by the glory of Christ. Did you miss that? That's the best line of the night. The surest way to see yourself honestly, accurately, is to be confronted by the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is a series on humility. So I want to tell you that a full view of Jesus Christ will bring you as low as you should be. Not as low as you are. Not as low as you want to be. Not as low as you think you should be. But as you really should be. Looking at Christ might make you fall down in a bunch of squirrely, wiggly fish. And say, Lord, depart from me. Where can Jesus go? They're in the middle of the deep water. He's saying, my sin is so great and I see that you're different. You're other. You're different from me. You're beyond me. You're greater than me. And that's what terrified him. That's why he said, depart from me. And that's why our Lord says in verse 10, do not fear. I bring out this. In verse 9, Peter is the one who speaks, not Andrew, James, or John. But they were all astonished. Look at verse 9. For he was astonished, and all that were with him. Everyone was amazed. Peter spoke. Sometimes being talkative is bad, but not always. Peter got it right. When everyone else was afraid to talk, Peter spoke wisely. Wisdom came from his lips. So I want to urge you now are you low before the Lord? If you've seen Christ, you are. 
or to turn in another direction. If you want to be low, go find the glory of Jesus. Even unbelievers are humbled when they see him. Philippians 2. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a day when unbelievers will see Jesus and they will be humbled by him. So let me close with this. How may we learn to focus on the glory of Christ? How may we do this? What can I do? Because I believe that there are godly Christians here who love Jesus and you want to have the experience that Peter had. Not because you're searching after the thrill of new spiritual experiences, but because you genuinely want to know Christ. As Paul said, you want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. You say, more than anything, I would see Christ. Or in John 17, 24, when Jesus prays to the Father and says, I pray that you would show them the glory that I had with you before the world was. He asks God to show Father, show them my glory, the glory that was hidden from eternity past. Some of you see that that is the Christian life. What does it mean to have eternal life? This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To have eternal life is to know Christ. And the great prayer that Christ gives to the Father is, Send to those people a revelation of my glory. And if you are a believer, then you want to know him. Even as I'm speaking, something in you, like a magnet, like a fire, is drawing it, saying, yes. Let me give you now five practical ways to do this. Now, I I like to give these practical examples, practical applications, but I know that they can overlap. So I actually cut things off my list that I've given to you before. So this never, I've not given this list before. These are five entirely new. If I'd used things before, it'd probably be 15 things. This is five things not given before. I know you can say, oh, but you forgot this. Go ahead, add those in. Because I've given you those ones before. These are five new things. How may we learn to focus on the glory of Christ? One, two, three, four, five. Number one, look for Jesus' person and work. Each day in the Bible. Look for Jesus' person and work each day in the Bible. When you're reading the Bible, don't merely read, but look for Jesus when you read. And if you don't find him, say, like the Shulamite woman did when she was searching for her husband Solomon... Where have they taken my beloved? Where is my beloved? Look for him. Cry out for him. And then you will say as she did for Solomon. I have found him whom my soul loves. Number one, look for Jesus' person and work. Each day in the Bible. Sometimes you'll find his person. Sometimes you'll see that he performs miracles. Sometimes you'll see that he's humble. Sometimes you'll see that he judges, that he rules, that he reigns. Sometimes you'll see his work, 
that he dies for sinners. Look for him. Number two, stretch your mind. Stretch your mind to parts of Christ's glory that you are not familiar with. Stretch your mind to parts of Christ's glory that you are not familiar with. Let me give you some examples. Are you familiar with these? I've just got a half a dozen or so. Are you familiar with this? Imputation. Christ took our sin and yet remained sinless. I know it's common for people to say this. This is very common. Christ died for sinners. Everyone says that. But have you ever thought of this? Christ took their sin and yet remained sinless. Think about, stretch your mind. How is it possible in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he was made sin and yet sinless? He was. How? Think, stretch your mind. Think of his impeccability. This is all under number two. I've got half a dozen or so things to think about. I'm giving these now. Impeccability. That means it's from Latin. It means not able to sin. Impeccability. He was not only sinless, he was not able to sin. How could he be tempted? Hebrews 4 says he was tempted in every area that we were tempted, and yet he did not sin. He was impeccable. He couldn't sin. Satan went out into the wilderness and tempted him. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness and tempted, and yet he didn't sin. How did that happen? He couldn't sin. How could he be man and not be able to sin? Stretch your mind. Number three, his incarnation. Imagine, imagine, stretch your mind that the infinite became the infant. Number four, stretch your mind on his intercession. Have you ever thought that Christ prays for all his people? Romans 8.34. John 17, verse 9 to 12 He does not pray for the world. He prays for all the apostles and all those who will believe on him through the words of the apostles. How many people is that? At Grace Bible, it's 11 people so far that Jesus prays for. But there's a lot more churches than just ours. He prays for all the believers. Is it a million? No, two million 400 million. Some time ago, I attempted to count up all the numbers of people who might be called conservative or Bible-believing Christians in the world. I took statistics from different denominations and then estimated, and I came up with somewhere around 500 million. Now, that's just a wild estimate. Of course, God knows his people. Can you imagine praying for 500 million people Today, that's not counting the believers from 50 years ago, or 100, or 200, or 300, or 500 years ago. How many believers are there, and Christ prays for them? Stretch your mind to think of his infinitude in prayer. 
Stretch your mind to think of his providence. Colossians 1.17 says, <clears throat> Colossians 1.16 says, By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things. And by him, he, and he upholds all things. He holds them together. Have you ever thought that if Jesus were not here, bricks would fall apart? Air would go the wrong direction. Water might flow uphill. Christ holds it together. He keeps the laws running. Science works because Christ holds it together. There's no greater scientist than him. He's the fountainhood. The fountainhead. Stretch your mind for his offices. This is number six under the second way to stretch your mind. Stretch your mind to all of his offices. Does anyone know the threefold offices of Christ? Tell me, who knows the threefold offices of Christ? Jesus is the perfect mm-mm-mm. Prophet, priest, and king. He's also the perfect what? Shepherd, judge, what else? Servant, lawgiver, husband, son, brother. He is perfect in all of his offices. John Calvin, at least I think it started with John Calvin, began the threefold offices of Christ. Maybe it came before him, I'm not sure. John Calvin speaks much about the threefold offices of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. And it's beautiful as far as it goes. But I wonder if we haven't missed something by stopping at three. He, he likes the three, it parallels the Trinity, the prophet, priest, and king, Father, Son, and Spirit. But I think, really, why stop at three? Christ is the perfect of every office. Stretch your mind to consider this. How might you learn to focus on the glory of Christ? Number three, the third way that you can learn to focus on the glory of Christ. Put yourself in the shoes of the apostles as you read the Gospels. I don't know if there's anyone better at this than Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry lived in the 1700s and he wrote a commentary on every verse of the Bible. You can get his commentary for free. Or... You can buy a one-volume commentary of the whole Bible. It's greatly condensed. It's only about a tenth of the whole thing, but it helps. Or you can get it on your phone for free. When you read about the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, read Matthew Henry's commentary. Because Henry had this brilliant skill of being able to step into the history. He could imagine what the history was like And the glory of Christ becomes so alive when you actually make the history alive. Put yourself in the shoes of the apostles. Number four, way to ponder and focus on Christ. Ponder what the world would be like if the Lord Jesus were taken away. If the Lord Jesus were gone, what would the world be taken away? What would the world be like? There would be no more churches. There would be no more Bibles. 
There will be no more Christians. There will be no one serving in the name of Jesus. There will be no more ministries that are Christian. There will be no more ministries that feed the poor. There will be no more Christians advocating for just laws in the government. There will be no more evangelism. There will be no more reading and praying with children. Think of what would happen in history. There will be no Bach. There will be no staff lines that you can read music. There will be no John Bunyan. And this is contested in history. I, I recognize that. So when I say this, I know that it's contested, but there would be no Renaissance art. There would be no glorious novels in the English tradition, and I say there would be even no Victor Hugo, though he was a French Catholic, with his novels. Think about what the world would be like if you took Christ away. There would be no Michael Faraday with his inventions. There would be no Louis Pasteur with his inventions. There would be no Isaac Newton with his Newtonian physics. There would not be Johannes Kepler with his three laws of interplanetary motion. The greatest scientists of the world, of the ages, would be gone. The greatest literature would be gone. <clears throat> the first hospitals were begun by Christians in the name of Christ, and they would be gone. The Elam Hospital would be gone. Martin Luther began public education following the example of King Alfred, all influenced by Jesus Christ. The rights of women would be gone because it's only Christianity that has exalted the honor and dignity of women as being made in the image of God. And it's only Christ who takes a bride for himself. And then, of course, as I already hinted at, all the laws of the world would be gone. Atoms wouldn't cling, electrons and neutrons would break apart. So we would all die. And the world would disintegrate. Is there not some glory in him that would make you fall at his feet and adore him? And number five, how may we learn to focus on the glory of Christ? Pray for Jesus to return. When you pray for Jesus to return, you are setting yourself outside of the world hoping for that time when Christ will come, when he will be the just judge of the earth. Hoping for that time when he will bring a revival and all Israel will be saved. When you pray for Christ to return, you are praying for an end to injustice. Because only Jesus can bring true social justice. When people fight today for social justice, they are fighting for something that only Jesus can bring. I'm not saying we should be unjust. I am saying, don't set your hopes on that. Pray for our Lord to return, because when you do, you're setting your heart and your hope and your love, and you're obeying Hebrews 9. We all know verse 27 in Hebrews 9. Listen to this, Hebrews 9, 27. As it is appointed in a man once to die, and after this the judgment, but we don't know the next verse which says, and unto those who look for him, he will appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He appears without sin to save those who are looking for him. 
Are we looking for Christ? Pray for him, and that will help you to look for him. Why did I give you these five? Because I want you to see and feel and know what Peter saw and felt and knew. He knew true humility. And we will be humble when we see Christ. Let's close our eyes. What can we say, Father?